Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. We need to learn to take God at his word. Sounds easy enough, especially when it's smooth sailing. But in the midst of a storm, even the disciples of Jesus needed a reminder. On one occasion, he told them, let us go over to the other side. They did. En route to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, however, their boat encountered a furious squall. The sky opened and buckets of water fell and waves threatened to overturn the boat. The disciples turned to Jesus and found him sound asleep. They screamed, don't you care if we drown? Jesus woke up, stood up, commanded the storm to shut up, and then said to the disciples, do you still have no faith? What a stunning rebuke. The sea was raging. The water was churning. Why did Jesus scold them? Simple. They didn't take him at his word. He said they were going to the other side. He didn't say, we're going to the middle of the lake to drown. Jesus had declared the outcome. But when the storm came, the disciples heard the roar of the winds and forgot his word. Storms are coming your way. Winds will howl. Your boat will be tossed. And you will have a choice. Will you hear Christ or the crisis? Heed the promise of Scripture or the noise of the storm? Will you take God at his word? We're here in the Archbishop's Corner, where Archbishop Leonard Blair of Hartford will help us be strong in faith and encourage us to take God at his word. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into your space, into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Well, you sent a letter out last week to all priests and deacons of the Archdiocese regarding the spread of the coronavirus, offering some suggestions, precautionary measures to be taken, especially within the liturgy. Can, can you go through some of those just to, to reacquaint people with what these are and, and what you're trying to do in terms of keeping people safe? Well, certainly. I First of all, I, I concluded that memo by asking our clergy to remember in the prayer of the faithful, too, some prayers uh, mm-hmm. and possibly using during the week uh, some of the uh, masses for special needs, votive masses, I guess you would call them, particularly if uh, if this continues to progress in a way that's really widely harmful to the health of a lot of people. But the um, immediate concern, uh, and I do this uh, on the basis of what I anticipate are the legitimate concerns of our Catholic people who are attending Mass. And uh, one of them is that the most obvious is the um, exchanging the sign of peace by shaking hands uh, to tell priests that we should refrain from having people do that. You know, even offering the sign of peace at Mass, uh, the Missal says that people can be invited to do this if appropriate. You don't have to do it, but if you do and continue to do it, which is fine, uh, people can just simply say to one another, peace be with you, and they don't have to shake hands. And I think we've been told, are constantly being told in the media, that handshaking and that kind of physical contact is the, a very prime way of contracting this kind of disease. And I say this kind because it's also the way that we can catch colds and the flu, flu the regular sure, flu. Sure. So I think uh, it's, uh, I think out of, even if some people are not convinced of it or they think it's overdone, I think we should, out of deference to those who are genuinely concerned and as a precaution to refrain from uh, the handshaking uh, for, for now, for the time being, now, to see how this plays out. Now, some media are suggesting an elbow bump, but you're not suggesting that we do that during the sign of peace and pass. 
Now, I know the sign of peace can sometimes be exchanged rather casually between people, and uh, but I no, I am certainly not advocating something like that. Uh, also, um, another thing is uh, some of our parishes do uh, offer uh, communion under both forms. That is to say that the congregation is invited to receive from the chalice, and I've uh, directed that that be suspended drinking from a common cup. A uh, common chalice is not uh, a good idea. In fact, I've even said that concelebrating priests and assisting deacons should receive by intinction, that is to say, which is a valid form of receiving under both forms, namely that the uh, host is dipped in the precious blood and received on the tongue. Another thing that we uh, that I've said is that uh, the holy water fonts should be emptied of water uh, because, I mean, normally we only do that during Passion Tide, just before Easter, but, you know, a common font in which people dip their fingers uh, can really be a, a, a source of uh, germs, virus. Uh, and uh, also a simple thing like having only the ushers handle baskets. I think uh, collection baskets, I think in most parishes that's the case, but there may be some where people pass it around and it's pro- and then hand it to the usher. It's better if it's just handled by the by the ushers. So these are simple things, and, you know, I remind the importance of those priests and lay persons who are distributing the Holy Eucharist to be sure that they wash their hands thoroughly before and after or use one of these hand sanitizers uh, to make sure that... And another thing that I think is perhaps sensitive for some people, there are those, you know, the bishops of the United States have directed that the normal way of receiving communion is in the hand. Now, if a person prefers to receive on the tongue, we don't uh, forbid that. We don't withhold communion. They can do that. But I'm, I'm telling uh, uh, people, and this should be obvious, we are strongly discouraging people from receiving Holy Communion on the tongue because uh, those of us who have been priests for a while know that sometimes, depending on how people do this, some of their saliva can even get on our finger mm-hmm. as we are uh, distributing the host. And therefore, this is a terrible way of, uh, uh, obviously inadvertent, nobody means to do it, but it is a... Um, way that, that uh, germs and virus can be communicated. So I think uh, I'd respectfully ask people to put aside their own um, preferences and receive communion in the hand, which is the normal way it's to be received in the United States uh, during this time, so as not to spread these kinds of germs through communion uh, on the tongue. Okay. I think that's pretty much it. I don't recall. Uh, no, that's, pretty thorough. that's pretty thorough, yeah. Archbishop. And uh, one question, however. One of the things, Archbishop, you, you did mention, too, that those people who are, are sick or experiencing symptoms of sickness are not obliged to attend Mass, and out of charity, they ought not to attend. Yes. I mean, uh, would that more people were conscientious about going to Mass on Sunday. I certainly don't want to discourage that. By the appearances of our empty pews in our churches, most people are, don't feel very compelled to honor their obligation to go to Sunday Mass. But the other, on the other hand... If somebody who's very conscientious about it uh, is sick, uh, it is not uh, 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 an act of charity uh, or, or of honoring God to go to Mass if you're sick and could possibly spread that to other people. So we're making that very uh, clear that nobody should feel obliged to go to Mass if they're coming down with symptoms uh, of illness during this period, well, always, but particularly at this time, so that they don't communicate whatever they may have to other people. 
The other thing, Archbishop, that could be done is we can encourage people who are sick and uh, cannot get out or should not go to uh, Mass in their parish that they can participate at Mass through television by watching the television Mass at 10 o'clock every day of the week on WCCT Television Channel 20 or WCTX Television MyTV9 Channel 59. No, that's a very timely uh, reminder to people. Yes, if you show symptoms of the flu or sickness that uh, prevents you from going to church and contaminating other people or possibly getting them sick, then that's a wonderful idea to participate in Mass. Obviously, you can't receive Holy Communion in that way, but you can spiritually uh, make a spiritual communion by um, participating through the uh, media, through WJMJ. Today, March 15th, is what's called True Confessions Day. A day created to inspire people to let go of their secrets and have a day of honesty. Now, confession is important in many religions, yet not everyone likes going to confession, and many cannot see the value in going. Can you talk a little bit about what confession means in the Catholic tradition and why this season of Lent is the perfect time for confession? Yes, what you say just underscores the fact that uh, making a confession of one's sins is not only spiritually or sacramentally of value and importance, but it's also even from the point of view of the, uh, of the sciences, of psychiatry and psychology, that unburdening yourself of something uh, is important for uh, mental health as well as mm-hmm. spiritual health. So many people go to therapists and counselors and psychiatrists and psychologists, and what they basically do is go to confession, not obviously in uh, the religious sense that we, uh, a sacramental sense that we uh, uh, practice it. But so there's a great value in this for the health of a, of a human soul and a human mind and person. So it's no surprise then that the church from, uh, based on Christ's own words and the practice of the church from very early on in the church has made confession, auricular confession a part of the sacrament of penance. And while it's true that, strictly speaking, you're not obliged to go to confession uh, as such unless you have mortal sins, uh, it's been very clear from the beginning that there is a great spiritual value even to confessing venial sins, to confessing those ways in which we have failed uh, by what we've, well, I put it this way, we have sinned by what we've done or failed to do uh, to live the radical demands of the gospel. So confession is good for the soul. It's good for people. And the season of Lent is the perfect time to, to go to confession. Absolutely. It's a season of penance. Let's talk a little bit about Tuesday being St. Patrick's Day. We celebrate this popular holiday, a day in honor of the patron saint of Ireland, converted the Irish to Christianity, established monasteries, churches, and schools throughout Ireland. It's a true day of celebrating Irish history, ancestry, traditions, customs, Sadly, though, celebrations generally forget the religious aspect of the focus, and they focus just around green beer, corned beef. Is there anything about St. Patrick, Archbishop, that stands out for you that you'd like to bring our attention to? Well, I think um, if you a serious study of the life of St. Patrick, of what we know about him, is very revealing. A man who, you know, was sold into slavery, or, or taken in slavery, rather, and uh, who then... Uh, when he was freed, went back to this place of slavery in order to bring the faith, Mm. is uh, very telling in itself of the kind of man he was. And then when you read some of these beautiful prayers of St. Patrick attributed to him, uh, some of his, we don't have much, but some of the original texts, uh, obviously he was a great uh, pillar of the church, a great apostle, a great bishop. Evangelizing. 
And, oh, absolutely an evangelizer, you know. And uh, I know today the faith is not in the best of shape in Ireland by all accounts, that many people are turning away from it, and there have been many scandals and terrible things, but I I would pray for a great renewal of the faith uh, among the Irish people, among those who have fallen away. I know that our, our very own uh, Apostles of the Sacred Heart Sisters here in uh, the Archdiocese uh, have gone to Ireland to found a house uh, to try to help in this uh, evangelization effort uh, uh, in, in Ireland, and that's a, that's a wonderful thing. When you think of how many Irish uh, priests and sisters came to the United States bringing the faith and sustaining the faith among the Irish people here, and now to imagine at this point, uh, modest though it may be, uh, these sisters going over there from here uh, to renew the faith in Ireland, uh, it, it tells you about how history turns out sometimes. And we can't forget the feast of St. Joseph, the husband of the Virgin Mary, foster father of Jesus, that is celebrated on Thursday of this coming week, March 19th. St. Joseph is also the patron saint of the Archdiocese of Hartford. So what can we learn from St. Joseph when it comes to our own relationships and families, Archbishop? Well, St. Joseph, of course, is our cathedral's name for him, and as you say, the patron. I mean, not much is said of Joseph uh, in the scriptures, but God says a lot with a few words, you know. We're told that he was a just man, a righteous person. And, you know, how many people today really uh, strive to be and prize somebody who's righteous? I know it's to many ears it sounds like an old-fashioned uh, concept, but uh, I suppose you can say just is a, another way of putting it. But righteous in the sense of being right with God and right with uh, uh, other people by living a life of virtue, of being courageous, of doing one's duty faithfully to the end, of not rebelling against the crosses and trials uh, and challenges of life. All of those things we find in Joseph, even in the few things that are said about him in the gospel. And I think that uh, he's patron of the universal church as well, as kind of as he protected and provided for Mary and Joseph uh, uh, on this earth. We pray that he also will uh, provide for and guide and protect uh, uh, the church, the bride of Christ uh, in this world now. Well, Archbishop, we've got several questions that have been submitted by our WJMJ listeners, but before we get to those questions, we'll take a look at our Gospel reading on this third Sunday of Lent, the 15th day of March. Today's Gospel is taken from John, the fourth chapter, and after the Gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you and ask for your thoughts. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, and his sons, and his cattle? Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will show us all things. I who speak to you am He. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of your words that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Archbishop, what are your thoughts as you hear this gospel account by John? Well, two things. One is um, how Jesus has come to save sinners. This is not a chance meeting. Obviously, nothing in Christ's ministry is by chance, and certainly it's not by chance that it's recorded in the gospel of John. Jesus came into the world to, to uh, save sinners, to call us to repentance and faith. So, Jesus confronts, but not in a bad sense. He, he meets, he, he encounters, he, he engages uh, this woman who is clearly not living uh, a life uh, in keeping with God's commandments with regard to her m- married life. What is more, she is a Samaritan, uh, and you know the Jews and the Samaritans were at odds. Uh, they have nothing to do with one another. And yet, again, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's came for all he's came, as Pope Francis says so eloquently, he came and he continues to come to the peripheries, mm-hmm. not to the people that that uh, are expected, but comes to everyone, especially those who are on the margins of society or at odds. So that's one aspect of it. But the other is that Jesus is not afraid to challenge her very strongly to uh, change her ways, to change her life. And again, it goes back to the most basic message of the gospel. When Jesus opened his mouth for the first time, he said, repent and believe. And that's exactly what's here. So repent of this uh, 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 being at odds with uh, the commandments of God about uh, marriage uh, and believe, uh, to believe in Jesus himself, that Jesus is the living water, uh, which is an astounding thing for this Samaritan woman to hear, uh, that he himself uh, is the is the living water, the Messiah that's coming into the world, the one who will make it possible to worship in spirit and in truth. And the disciples, you know, are kind of, uh, when they finally show up back from their uh, uh, the errands they were doing, they're, they're startled at the startled that he would talk to the Samaritan, uh, that he would talk to a woman this way. Again, they, this is a learning process for them that Jesus has come to save sinners, and including them, and he's come to save not just uh, them, but the whole world. 
I wonder if this gospel says something to us about racism, too, Archbishop, because she says, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And Samaria was this small country between the Jewish provinces of Judea and Galilee. The shortest distance between the two was to go through Samaria. However, for most Jews, their racial resentment was so deep they didn't even want to come in contact with the land where the Samaritans lived. And Jesus would have no part of their their racial fences, so to speak. So is Jesus telling us maybe something about racism, that, that we've got to get rid of all traces of racism in our lives? Well, yes. I mean, I think the important word or important uh, part of that is the ism. You know, yes, the world is made up of different races and peoples, ethnicities, cultures, uh, diversity of peoples. Um, the church is Catholic. It's meant to go to all and to embrace all, and it does embrace all in Christ. Uh, but it's the ism part. You know, when yeah. you take the the differences between uh, races and you turn it into an ideology of separation or even hatred or rash judgment, then it becomes, um, you know, sinful and it becomes a, a countersign to the reality. I mean, you know, we, we, we are not all, not all of us are comfortable uh, in every uh, uh, culture uh, uh, or country in the world, in our, our way of life, what we're accustomed we may find it very awkward or hard to live in a, in a foreign culture, a very different culture. Uh, but that's not the same thing as saying that we despise it or we don't appreciate it or that we don't respect it or honor it, you know. So I think we have to recognize there is a diversity there are legitimate differences among people, but on the things that are most important, including our immortal soul and the message of uh, and belonging to the church, then we, we that is far more embracing and comprehensive than uh, any of the differences that we might experience among races and peoples. Let's take a moment now, and Archbishop, while we have time left in our program, and look at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. For instance, Carla from Avon has a good question. She says, what is the origin and significance of the Stations of the Cross? Should Catholics pray the Stations of the Cross at least once during Lent? Well, certainly the Stations of the Cross, uh, Carla, are a devotional object of devotion in the Church. And there are many ways, uh, many devotional things, novenas, different prayers. The Rosary itself is a, a devotional uh, means of, of praying. Uh, stations of the Cross, uh, I think I've said this on a previous program, that my own uh, patron saint, Leonard of Port Morris, Leonardo de Porto Maurizio in northern Italy in the 18th century, was a great promoter of the, de of the devotional uh, practice of the Stations of the Cross. And eventually it became established by uh, the papal direction uh, in every church to have the Stations of the Cross erected there. Sometimes it's a beautiful carved image. Other times it's just a cross in the wall. But it's a beautiful way of accompanying Christ uh, spiritually, prayerfully, in the mysteries of his passion. I would certainly recommend it to everybody to uh, to do it, as you say, at least once during Lent. It's often celebrated uh, on Good Friday before the liturgical service uh, earlier in the day. But I would hope that during Lent, people would either have a chance to go to church where it's being prayed or to get one of the station books that have the various prayers that commemorating the, the 14 stations and to pray it privately. When I was growing up, we would go to Stations of the Cross every Friday during Lent. And it was, it was a wonderful opportunity to relive the passion death of Christ in prayer. I still think that many parishes on Fridays during Lent celebrate publicly the Stations of the Cross, Archbishop, don't you? I would hope so, yes. That's my understanding. Yeah. That many do. Yeah. I remember when I was in grade school, it was similarly, every Friday in Lent, 
we were all marched over to church, the whole grade school, and uh, did the Stations of the Cross. And Sister Clarita, the principal, used to sing a solo, O Come and Mourn with Me a While. I certainly remember that. Wow. Um, and then uh, we used to all, uh, when I was an altar boy too, I remember serving. And of course, serving uh, back in those days in my home parish, the Stations were also offered on a, one day in Polish. I can remember I didn't understand completely what was being said other than I knew from the English what it was, but uh, doing the Stations of the Cross that way. Well, I used to love, as an altar boy, being able to carry the cross for the Stations of the Cross. That's what I used to enjoy. You wanted to show off. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there was a little bit of that then. I don't know. But anyway, moving right along. I don't know. The TV personality, the radio personality is showing there. I guess one can never shirk those things, can they? My confession. You're absolved. You're absolved. Thank you. Another question comes from Rich from Meriden. Rich says, I felt so bad about a particular thing I did that I confessed it a second time the next time I went to confession. Did I commit that sin of not believing in God's mercy? No, Rich, but you shouldn't be scrupulous. Scrupulosity is um, it's something to be avoided. Uh, we, we believe in the mercy of God. God means what he says. And if the priest says, I absolve you, you know, as uh, acting in the person of Christ, you're absolved. So you needn't uh, trouble yourself uh, unnecessarily. Linda from Roxbury says, In my parish, many people at Mass hold their hands up while praying, like the priest does. What's the point of doing that? Is that a better way to pray? Well, Linda, it's the so-called orans position of prayer, which simply, orans in Latin simply means praying. Uh, And, yeah, you know, that's been traditional in Christianity to lift up uh, your hands as the priest does at Mass. If people do it at Mass in the pew, I, I don't object to it, you know, I mean, uh, but it's not required. Uh, it's not uh, something that we have to do. Uh, and as long as we're not showy about it, but we simply sincerely mean it as a, a way of praying and it's not ostentatious, then I would say it, it's acceptable. Here's an interesting question, Archbishop, from Karen from Bristol. Karen says, what is the most unusual Lenten sacrifice you have heard? Hmm. Oh, Karen, I'd have to think about that. I, nothing comes to my mind immediately. Yeah. Um Sometimes people, you know, in Christian history have undertaken great penitential practices in the lives of some of the saints or some of the other thing, uh, things that we read about people. They have been particularly grieved by some terrible thing in their life and have taken on extraordinary penances. You know, I think of the pilgrimage as being along those lines. You know, today, even if people do pilgrimages on foot, there's all the modern amenities on the uh, you know to provide it to help them and feed them and so whether it's uh, Compostela in Spain or I don't know some of the other uh, pilgrim ways of which there are a number in Christian history sometimes they were they were very arduous you know in ancient times medieval times but people would undertake them as a penance. Coinciding with Karen's question comes a question from Sherry from Collinsville. Sherry says, Archbishop, what did you give up for Lent? I always struggle with deciding on what to give up because I worry it's not a big enough sacrifice. Well, I try to do a number of uh, extra things uh, because, remember, Lent is about really three things. It's about uh, prayer and charity and uh, penance. So you're asking about the penance part. One thing I do is I give up any kind of desserts, uh, sweets during Lent. And, of course, that's kind of hard on... uh, St. Patrick's Day, for example, when I have to go to various things. Now, I will say the one exception I do make, because it's not, it's a, a joyful solemnity, is St. Joseph's Day is a solemnity. And if the Annunciation winds up being celebrated during Lent, 
then uh, those two days are big feast days. You but mean we can have Zapoli on St. Joseph's Day if we've given yes, up desserts? Yes, you can because it's, you know, really uh, that's a joyful solemnity. It's not, not uh, it's meant to be celebrated that one day and enunciation. Uh, but otherwise, I stick to my, uh, my resolution. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our program together. Can you conclude our program with a prayer and a blessing? Lord, as we celebrate and enter more deeply into the, the graces of Lent, we pray that uh, you will continue to accompany us to take to heart the words of the gospel, that we repent and believe, that we purify our minds and hearts and souls by penance and by acts of charity and prayer to come closer to Christ, uh, come closer to the mysteries of our faith, so at Easter we may celebrate joyfully uh, the resurrection. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next Sunday, where we'll have many more questions for you, I'm sure. Until then, enjoy this week. Thank you. Thank you.